Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. city in the American West where Mormonism, as well as family and religious values, are very strong and deeply rooted in its population, more so than anywhere else in the United States. Yet between 1979 and 1983, the city went through some of its darkest days. The disturbing disappearances of several children occurred, for the most part, little boys under the age of 10. Despite search efforts undertaken by the police, the predators remained elusive. Join us as we take a trip back in time to when America was flourishing under an economic boom, even as it was hiding some very dangerous individuals. Is a primary home to the rich and powerful in the state of Utah. It's also the birthplace of the Mormon religion, which includes more adherence than any other place in the country. It's an active city that does very well economically. The unemployed rate is low and the crime rate is below the national average. There's no organized crime, there are no thugs sprawling the streets, no purse snatchings, and no holdups. Your Mormon values are so well established that it's difficult to make even the slightest mistake or commit the least sin. In Salt Lake City, faith is not to be trifled with, and the actions and deeds of each and every person are scrutinized, monitored, and severely reprimanded if necessary. Any Mormon who has been exiled from their community is a lost Mormon. Mormons are not permitted to live outside of Utah, except when they leave on a mission on behalf of their church. Here, all the houses are oversized given the practice of polygamy is widespread and tolerated. Therefore, it is not unusual to see two or three, even five wives and their children living in the same house in flagrant defiance of American laws and in complete opposition with that lifestyle. But Mormons reign supreme here, and that might be decried in the neighboring state of California, is tolerated in Utah. It's important to note that this is a wealthy, religious society that is centered around the church. In this case, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those who have already had the chance to visit Utah maybe know what that means. But the city was also home to families seeking to escape life's constraints. Families from other parts of the United States who were searching for a better future. Such was the case for the Cunningham family. In 1965, like many others from Scotland and Ireland, Shauna and John Cunningham left their birthplace to move permanently to the wealthy and prosperous American continent. The Cunninghams were the parents of a 15-month-old little girl. 
and Salt Lake City, they found a significant number of Scottish expatriates who were mostly from Glasgow, just as they were. The couple felt at home in their adopted country. They both found jobs and soon they were able to buy themselves their dream home, a pretty little cottage in the residential suburb. Their two other children were born in the United States, Ian in 1968 and Graham in 1970. In the early 1980s, the Cunninghams moved into a larger home that was capable of accommodating their now-growing family. Graham, the youngest child who was then 13 years old, was lively, intelligent, and very resourceful. He had plenty of friends and participated in lots of after-school activities like camping, scouting, canoeing, and jogging. His parents encouraged his independence, but still were careful to note who his friends were. It's important to recall that Shana and John both worked the whole day and did not get home until late. As a waitress, Shana sometimes had some very unusual hours. The children therefore quickly learned how to fend for themselves, to make their own meals, and to do their homework while waiting for their mother to come home. At the elementary school that Graham attended, it was not unusual for parents to help overwork teachers by taking children on camping trips to the Wasatch Mountains overlooking the city or the surrounding streams. The area offered the best in terms of camping and lakeside sports which were practically an institution in the region. Early in the evening on July 14, 1983, Graham Cunningham, 13, got a phone call. He answered, spoke for a moment, hung up, and then he put on his coat and hat and got ready to go out. Shauna Cunningham remembered that day, I saw Graham running past me and I recall telling him, where are you going? He told me, Mom, I'm going to the supermarket. So I simply told him, don't come home too late. I wasn't aware at the moment that I was seeing my son for the last time. The Spitz supermarket was located only a few meters from the Cunningham's home. The neighborhood was peaceful, the neighbors all knew each other, and children regularly came and went without giving their parents cause for alarm. Shauna let her son go out. Hours went by, 7 p.m., then 9 p.m., 11 p.m., and at midnight, Graham still had not yet come home from his errands. The store had already closed for quite a while. When John Cunningham got home from work, he found his wife beside herself. It's Graham, she said. He hasn't come home. He told me he was going to the grocery store. I never should have. At one o'clock in the morning, the Cunninghams couldn't take it any longer and finally called the police. The two officers who came to their home told them that they would have to wait at least 24 hours before they could do anything. The police thought it still might be possible that the child was sleeping at a friend's house and simply forgot to let his parents know. Shauna Cunningham took out her personal organizer and woke each of the parents of Graham's friends from their sleep. The little boy was not with any of them. In desperation, she begged the police officers to start an investigation immediately. Several days had gone by since Graham Cunningham's disturbing disappearance and the police had not yet made any serious effort. The couple's trips back and forth to the police headquarters always included sentiments such as We'll call you as soon as we have any news. Our officers are looking after your case. The sight of boards with photos of minor children who had gone missing in the 1960s and 70s did nothing to reassure the parents who were already overcome with worry. Shauna Cunningham knew from that moment on she could only count on herself to get things moving in finding her son. At that time, she was working as a waitress in a French restaurant called Le Bistro, which was steps from the courthouse. 
Moreover, the restaurant was regularly frequented by judges who often stopped by for their breakfast or their business dinners. On one evening, Mrs. Cunningham did not hesitate to approach one of them to tell them about her case. She cried and the judge took pity on her. He promised that he would do something. Don Bell, a young investigator, was assigned to the case by his superiors. When the file reached his desk, it had already been a week since Graham had disappeared. His boss gave him eight days to close the case. Thus began a race against the clock for the police, who only had a few pieces of information to begin their search. They decided to start at the source and to find out more about Graham's acquaintances and his daily schedule. The Cunninghams gave them the telephone numbers of their son's friends and quickly they had a starting point. Don Bell learned from a few of the other boys who were in Graham's class that he had planned to go camping with another friend in California. Apparently, Graham had been preparing for his trip since January. He had even saved a little bit of money after doing yard work for some of the neighbors in the area. He was described as a friendly child, resourceful, brave, and who usually hung out with everyone. During the course of his investigation and his interviews with Graham's circle of friends, Inspector Bell learned that several of them had canceled their plans to go on the trip. However, there still had to have been an organizer involved since the children were still too young to go on such a trip by themselves. The police officers decided to contact the adult who was supposed to have organized the trip to California. Inspector Bell learned that the man was a 32-year-old man named Roger Downs and that his stepson Jeff, who was 13, was in the same class as the missing boy. Despite several attempts, he was unable to reach Roger Downs and his number seemed to always be busy. Jeff was also unable to be located. Don Bell's curiosity had been piqued. The pair seemed to be the only two who wanted to avoid answering any questions. He did not have to wait a long time before receiving the answer to his questions. Michael Hain, another friend from Grant Cunningham's class, made a strange revelation to the police inspector. Roger Downs was not Jeff's stepfather. In fact, he was not related to him at all. From that moment on, the inspector knew that he had entered into a right minefield. If Roger Downs was not Jeff's stepfather, as this boy claimed then, what were they doing together? Where were his real parents and why had they left him with this person? But going through general information records, the inspector learned that Roger Downs was an assumed name. In reality, the man was called Arthur Gary Bishop. He was an accountant and through his job, he had managed to embezzle money from Ski Utah, a travel agency where he worked. Don Bell did not press any further with his research. He did, however, decided to stick very close to this lead. The eight days that had been granted to him to investigate Graham Cunningham's disappearance came to an end without any concrete results. Don Bell decided to turn the file over to another colleague, Steve McKenna. One morning of July 24, 1983, Don Bell arrived at his office early. As he set his cup of coffee on the table, he heard the telephone ringing. Don, it's Steve McKenna. I got something for you. To tell. This Arthur Bishop, he contacted the police headquarters and wanted to come in to speak with you. Thanks. But before confronting Arthur Bishop for the first time, the officer hoped to get an even more valuable confession from Jeff. He needed to first understand the exact nature of his relationship with his so-called stepfather. Arthur Bishop showed up the same day at the judicial police headquarters in Salt Lake City, joined by a small, pale boy with dark bangs falling over his baggy eyes. Without wasting any time, Don Bell took the child aside in his office just to try to put him at ease 
and to win over his confidence. That was no small feat. The first few minutes were spent in silence. Jeff remained mute with his eyes riveted on the edge of the table, his legs moving under the chair and his gaze turning away whenever he felt the police officers looking at him. Don Bell remembered him as follows. He was a strange child. Yes, that's the impression that he gave me. A strange, completely lost child. He spoke properly and answered all questions we asked him. During the whole time I was interrogating him, he called Bishop Papa. So then I asked him the fateful question. Jeff, do you love your papa, don't you? Yes. And he loves you? Yes. For the police officer, this conversation continued to be increasingly strange. Jeff, who still refused to look at him in the eye, kept his arm closely folded across his chest. Don Bell understood that this was going to be more challenging than he had thought. He then softened his tone to ask him, Jeff, look at me. Don't be afraid. You can tell me everything, okay? How long has your papa been abusing you? Jeff recoiled and Bell soon realized that he had hit the target. A silence fell over the office, which seemed to last an eternity for the police officer. The little boy eventually said in a small voice, since always. Don Bell was deeply upset at the end of that interview. From that moment on, the case took a whole new turn because it was no longer a matter of embezzlement and fraud, but rather a sinister case of pedophilia. Who then was this person sitting quietly in the police headquarters waiting room? Don Bell had to get him to start talking and soon, he began to be obsessed with the thought that Bishop had gone after Graham Cunningham. Arthur Bishop, alias Roger Downs, was unflappable, short, stocky, with high cheekbones and a friendly smile. He looked like a mad teacher with his big glasses and his play jacket. In the guise of a routine interview, Inspector Don Bell started the tape recorder to record the suspect. He started to ask Bishop some questions, the same questions of every adult who knew Graham. When did you last speak to Graham? Oh, I think, uh, uh, wh- oh, I think it was the middle of uh, last week. But the man prevaricated and beat around the bush. Bell decided to change his attitude and his strategy. He became more aggressive and more straightforward, but this only made Arthur Bishop more nervous than he already was. I made the mistake of telling him, I know you're not Roger Downs. I know that you are an imposter, Mr. Bishop. At that point, I thought he was going to want to end the interview. That he would shut up and only speak in the presence of a lawyer, as stipulated under American law. But surprisingly, he agreed to continue with the interview. However, Bishop refused to be recorded. The officer then told him that if necessary, he would be forced to arrest him and put him in handcuffs. Realizing that he would not get anything from him by force, Don Bell softened his approach and tried to negotiate instead. With a great deal of diplomacy, he tried to convince the suspect to allow his testimony to be recorded. He claimed that even without a recording, he could still write out his deposition by hand, but Arthur Bishop stubbornly refused to give in to the police officer's instance. Are you afraid that I'm going to let the press hear your testimony? Of course not. Come on. What an idea. At that moment, Arthur Bishop's facial expression began to relax. After an hour, he eventually agreed to allow his deposition to be recorded. Don Bell began speaking to him about Graham Cunningham, about his mother, who had been looking all over for him and who had been at her wit's end for days without any news from him. He spoke of his own son's fears for him and hoped that he hadn't been hurt or imprisoned somewhere by a maniac. Arthur Bishop crossed his arm, lowered his head and appeared to be trying to find the right words to say and then the incredible happened.
After having listened to the officer, he stated in an eerily calm voice, Graham isn't hurt, he's dead. Don Bell sat up straight in his chair. And how do you know that he's dead? Because I'm the one who killed him. Inspector Don Bell didn't know it yet, but he had just brought an end to a five-year-long criminal reign during which Bishop easily slipped through the cracks without worrying even for a moment about getting caught in the act. Inspector Don Bell had the feeling that it was going to be a long night and he would need a lot of patience to solve this case that circumstances had dumped into his lap. Arthur Bishop sat in front of him quietly finishing his coffee and refusing the cigarette that Inspector Steve McKenna offered him. A Mormon, thank you, but I don't smoke. An hour later, Arthur Bishop confessed and went over the chronology of the events. The police discovered that Graham Cunningham was the latest victim to date. Arthur Bishop had left several corpses in his wake. All of them were overconfident little boys who had difficulty finding the place among their siblings and who was too innocent to be able to detect his sexually predatory instincts that usually hid under a friendly and smiling face. My full name is Arthur Gray Bishop, and I was born in September 29, 1951, in Hinckley. I'm sometimes called Robert Downs, sometimes Lynn Jones, it depends. But really, I prefer Arthur because it sounds much more distinguished. Arthur Bishop's life began under the skies of Hinckley, a fairly large village in Utah surrounded by canyons and the desert. He was the oldest of five siblings, all boys. Their family was very religious. Bishop grew up among the religious fervor of his family and community where he was surrounded by restrictions. Mormons were forbidden to smoke, drink alcohol, or coffee and were required to adhere to strict rules about the dress that were applicable to boys and girls who, by themselves, were separated in an early age in order for them to be raised according to the customs and habits appropriate for their respective genders. As a Mormon, Arthur was raised as a Latter-day Saint, as his church advocated. He distinguished himself quite quickly within the Scouts, where he earned the highest distinction, that of Eagle Scout. At the age of 19, he headed to the Philippines to bring the good word of his church to the Pacific Island, which had once been a very popular brothel among American Marines. As a missionary, Bishop was in charge of converting as many followers as possible. He spoke glowingly of the advantages of joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He easily acquired American visa and a green card, quickly found a place to live, and had access to credit, lived within a friendly community where loneliness didn't exist, and no one ever feared themselves without material resources. The Mormon church was immensely wealthy. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
The shiny fairy tale that Bishop spun for the Filipino population was all the more tempting given the hardships that they faced daily. As a result, many new converts left with him for the United States the following year. Upon his return to Utah, Bishop began to specialize in accounting and received his secondary school diploma from Stephen Henager College. He found his first job at a car dealership. Bishop was a small young man who was quite serious for his age. While he lacked physical charm, nevertheless he won people over with his good manners, his soft, engaging voice, formal language, and his tendency to help anyone who asked him. Bishop was the kind of person who could find a solution to any problem. And then the unexpected happened. The young accountant was accused, with supporting evidence by his boss of having embezzled the sum of $8,714. Besides being a criminal misdemeanor, the theft was seen by Mormons as the ultimate sin. When his parents and his relatives heard the news that they were astonished, they were convinced that there must have been some kind of mistake. Arthur, the good and devout Arthur, was quite simply incapable of committing such an act. He was too upstanding and honest for that. But the boss stood his ground and Bishop had to endure the humiliation of appearing before the court to answer for his crime. The verdict came down. He was given a five-year suspended sentence with a stipulation that he reimbursed the $8,714 within that time. Bishop promised that he would. Yet during his parole hearing, Arthur Bishop did not show up in court and instead flew off to Salt Lake City to start a new life. He never told anyone of his plans to flee and his departure was seen as a betrayal by his family and community. Consequently, he was officially excommunicated from the Mormon church for this ultimate act of rebellion and he was normally forbidden for ever setting foot there again. Unlike in Hickenley, Salt Lake City was a great, shiny new metropolis where the homes looked like castles which coexisted with the Gothic architecture of the church. The Mormons of Salt Lake City were different from those from those from where he came. The men were real businessmen who wore Gucci suits and drove big Japanese cars. Although the women still wore long, old-fashioned dresses, they still had no qualms about spending extravagant sums at the hairdresser or the beautician, even if they still ended up with the same discolored hair hanging down their lower back, the style usually adopted by married women. In order to slip by unnoticed and to blend in with the crowd, Arthur Bishop adopted the pseudonym of Roger Downs. He quickly found an apartment downtown and then a job at an alpine tourist agency called Ski Utah. Consistent with his work as a volunteer, he registered with the Big Brother program and took care of young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, most of whom were boys living in the streets who had run away from home. With his usual friendly manner, Arthur alias Roger Downs offered them his words of encouragement, his attentive ear, and his sound advice. It was also at around this time that he discovered his homosexuality and it made him uncomfortable. He tried to convince himself that it would go away. For a short time, he even secretly visited strip clubs and looked at pornographic magazines, but nothing seemed to work. He simply was not attracted to women. Through his volunteer work, he began fantasizing about the young charges, but never dared to go any further for fear of being exposed. To satisfy his impulses, he sometimes took advantage of shower time to sneak into the boys' locker room to spy on them. Upon returning home, he would often masturbate. However, that soon clandestine activity no longer satisfied him and he wanted to experiment with the real thing. 
In the neighborhood where he lived, Bishop quickly became very popular with children, especially the little boys who he treated with extra indulgence and concern. Some of them even started showing up at his house for the candy, comic books, or toys that he generously offered them. The parents and neighbors even saw this Roger Downs as a trustworthy man and respectable member of their religious community. In the evenings, sitting alone facing his dinner tray and his demons, Arthur Bishop had many other things on his mind. It was October 14, 1979, and Salt Lake City was seeing the first signs of autumn. Alonzo Daniels four was quietly playing in the courtyard of his building. When he looked up, he saw a pot-bellied man wearing glasses and a big smile. Do you want to come with me to get some Reese chocolates? Oh, yes, sir. I really do. You don't need to tell your mommy. It'll just be our secret, okay? Alonzo shook his head happily. He was a mixed-race child whose father was American and mother was a Mexican. The man reached with the boy's hand and together they left. When his mother came downstairs to call him for dinner, he was nowhere to be found. She asked all the neighbors, but no one had seen him. The police were then alerted. Since his apartment building was located only a few meters from that of the Daniels, Roger Downs was also questioned by the police as part of the routine investigation of neighbors in this kind of case. He emerged from the questioning without arousing the least suspicion. Due to a lack of leads or eyewitnesses, the police's efforts to find the little Alonzo were eventually abandoned. No one suspected then that the kindly bespectacled neighbor already had a corpse in his closet. And then you knocked him out. Is that right? Asked Inspector Don Bell. Yes, replied Arthur Bishop. With a hammer? Yes. Where did you put the body after that? I hid it in a room in my basement and then I moved it to Fort Cave, a hilly area. The tape recorder was on its second recording. It was November 9, 1980, in Salt Lake City, where the first Christmas lights were already starting to adorn the city's shops and stores. Kim Peterson, 11, was out bowling with his two friends. His friends had left to get popcorn and ice cream. Kim found himself alone waiting the large alley that separated the skating rink from the two bowling alleys. The blaring sound system, the exciting shreks from the children, and the announcement of the winning numbers into the microphone all made a pleasant hubbub. Still, more than an hour to get three measly ice cream cones? What could they be doing? You don't seem to have any skates from where I see. Kim was 11 years old and already a responsible little boy. He knew as he had already been told not to talk to strangers, yet this man seemed so friendly that he couldn't help but want to talk to him. No, but I'm going to borrow some from a friend. No need to worry. Thanks, sir. Well, who said that you are not allowed to go on the rink with new shoes? I don't have any, and I don't have any money either. So, what if I told you I could buy you some? Would you accept them? Kim's eyes immediately grew wide with excitement. Then he remembered that his mother told him and made a sad pat before once more taking on a confident air. He thanked the generous man without letting him know how much he really wanted a pair of new skates. It really shows how smart you are, young man. You know, I was like you. I always obeyed my mother, but sometimes mothers can go wrong too, even if they only want what's best for us. Such a nice, responsible boy like you deserves to be showered with gifts and should get special treatment. Don't you agree? My brothers take up all the room, cried Kim in a flash of anger. They always get to go before me. They buy their stuff before me, and I only end up with the crumbs. It's not fair. Yes, brothers can be real leeches sometimes. What's your name again? Kim, Kim Peterson. My name is Roger. Give me five. 
Now let's have a look around the shopping center and see if there's something you might like. Upon their return, Kim's friends looked around the bowling alley and the skating rink but did not find any sign of him. Eventually, his parents arrived and then the police. At a time when surveillance cameras were not widely used, it was difficult to reconstruct the missing child's timeline. Even months later, or more precisely on October 20, 1981, Danny Davis, four years old, was with his grandfather doing some shopping. As the elder gentleman was making his purchases, Danny, who was a regular there, knew every nook and cranny, left his grandfather's side to go to the toys department. That was when he met a man who offered to buy him a remote-controlled plane and a toy soldier. The little boy followed the man to the parking lot and got into his car. As he arrived at the cash register to pay, Daniel's grandfather looked up to see where he was, but couldn't find him anyway. Very soon, the whole store was looking for the child. They searched every corner, even in the back of the store, which was usually reserved for restocking and merchandise. There was no trace of Danny. The police arrived and made a report before searching around the city, with their sirens blaring throughout the day and part of the night, but were unsuccessful in their efforts. Danny had been snatched by the predator who wore glasses. Now, barely a day goes by in Salt Lake City without someone mentioning one of these three kidnapping cases. Some people had even begun to doubt that there was a connection between the three boys' disappearances, even though they were at different times. Major awareness campaigns were launched. Don't go off with a stranger, even if he seems nice, even if he smiles at you or offers you candy, money, or toys, and even if he asks you for help. Run away, and if you can, tell the first police officer that you see, was the message repeated by teachers in every classroom in Salt Lake City. Have you read the news, Mr. Downs? It seemed like a child has been kidnapped right out from his grandfather's nose. That's why I always say that tender-aged children should never leave their mother's apron strings. I think you're overdoing it a little, Mrs. Jones, said Roger Downs, smiling. And I think I'll take a carton of milk. Oh, no more chocolate milk, Mr. Downs. Are you trying to lose weight? Try to look nice for someone? Tell me, is there a fiancé in your future? If you choose her for me, I wouldn't say no, Mrs. Jones. Arthur Bishop left the supermarket with a newspaper folded under his arms. Danny Davis's face appeared on the front page under the disturbing disappearances section. It was June 22, 1983. The weather outside was perfect. For his sixth birthday, Troy Ward just received a handmade pair of cowboy boots with wooden heels that he proudly wore on his grandmother's floor. It was one of the best presents that he had ever gotten. In the past, he only got what the family could afford. The wards were poor, and the mother who was divorced was only able to take care of her children thanks to the meal vouchers and from assistance from the local church. For Troy's sixth birthday, she went all out to make him happy. Since the birthday cake wasn't going to be served until later that afternoon, Troy Ward spent his whole day frolicking in the alleys that separated his mother's house from the main road. Unlike the others, Troy Ward came to me of his own accord and asked if he could help me find my way. Are you looking for the road that goes to the artisan veld, sir? Troy Ward was blonde, he smiled with teeth ravaged by cavities, and was shabbily dressed except for the cowboy woods which stood out. He voluntarily got into Roger Downs' car to accompany him to his destination. Roger understood from his attitude and his attire that this boy came from a background where his absence might go unnoticed. At that very moment, his mother was probably taking care of the rest of the brats 
or conversely was an alcoholic depressive who was abandoned by her husband like the others whom the Mormon church had already condemned to eternal damnation. The child seemed to only have the clothes on his back. He had never seen the dentist and his hygiene was poor. Yet all throughout the trip, he was still smiling. Troy would never get to celebrate his birthday that evening, nor would he ever see his family again. The circumstances around meeting Graham Cunningham, the Scottish couple's child, were different from his previous encounters. Roger Downs was introduced to someone called Jeff, who came from a broken home. During a scouting trip in the Wasatch Mountains, on that day, the boy was with Graham, and soon a bond was forged between the two boys and their dubious companion, who had other ideas in his head. Yet no one around them suspected a thing. For other children in the class, Roger Downs was the husband of Jeff's mother and who he in fact called Papa in public. The school had never made any attempt to find any more about him. As a result of his extensive experience as a former Eagle Scout, Bishop was even able to get into the club that arranged the outings in the hopes of meeting more boys. Yet one reason for another, many of Graham and Jeff's friends kept their distance from him. They probably noticed his attitude that was a bit too deviant and suspicious. While some of the more mature boys were able to sense something in his behavior, none of them dared to talk about it, especially not his parents. In January 1983, Roger Downs announced to the two of his friends that he wanted to take them on a trip to California, a road trip for three along the coast headed for Hollywood. Graham was excited to be taking his first great trip without his parents and his brothers and sisters. He got along well with Mr. Downs, who, unlike his father, wasn't grumpy, didn't pinch his pennies, and didn't grouse for a yes or a no. He always spoke calmly and never got angry even when he and Jeff argued or did stupid things. The Predator's unhealthy attitude and his ability to manipulate the two boys meant that they now sometimes had to compete for his affection. They were jealous of each other and in a never-ending battle for his attention. Older Roger Downs generously offered to pay the expenses for their trip to California. Graham still wanted to bring some pocket money with him. For months, he cut the neighbor's grass, he did shopping for the elderly neighbors, and managed to put away a small bankroll of about $200. On the evening of July 14, 1983, Roger Downs called Graham at home. He had previously suggested that he stay close to the phone so that he could be the first to answer. As he left his family home to meet the secret predator at his house, Graham lied to his mother and said he was going to do some shopping at the supermarket. Upon his arrival at Roger Downs' house, Graham realized that Jeff wasn't there. Quickly, things began to deteriorate. Arthur Bishop wanted to take his clothes off to take his picture, but Graham vehemently refused. Eventually, however, he agreed for the sum of $100 and a promise to keep quiet and never tell anyone about their photo session. After he had finished taking the photos, Arthur Bishop knocked the child out with a hammer, then put his body into a bathtub filled with water. Jeff hid him behind a door and participated in the whole thing, although he was petrified with fear. I had a hammer right next to me. As he was getting dressed again, I smashed the skull with it. He died instantly. The day after his confession, Arthur Gary Bishop led inspectors Don Bell and Steve McKenna and the police to the Cedar Fort area of Utah County. There, they found the remains of Alonzo Daniels, Kim Peterson, and Daniel Davis, who had been kidnapped in a grocery store while he was with his grandfather. A few meters south, in Big Cottonwood Creek, Bishop told police where he had buried the body of Troy Ward and his most recent victim, Graham Cunningham. Throughout the entire time, he was being indicated. 
Arthur Bishop listed his crimes in descending order. First, he spoke of his most recent murders before eventually discussing the earliest. There was only an interval of a month between the murders of Troy Ward and Cunningham. During the investigation, the police discovered that Bishop had used a pseudonym other than Roger Downs. For a short time, he called himself Lynn Jones, and using this false identity, he embezzled the sum of $10,000 from a recent employer before stealing his own personal file from the office and hitting the road. For that offense, a complaint had been filed against him, but to no avail. In all, Inspector Don Bell recorded more than four hours of Bishop's testimony, which was spoken in an even monotone voice that betrayed no hint of emotion or nervousness. In addition to the five murders, Bishop admitted to having sexually abused at least 50 boys while he was working in a Big Brother house. Some teenagers would sometimes agree to sleep with him or even allow themselves to be photographed in the nude for money or promises of a job. Despite police requests, none of them wanted to testify during the trial. The trial for the Predator of Salt Lake City began on February 27, 1984, and mobilized the entire print media and every television station in Utah and the rest of the country. At the end of three weeks of continuous hearing, the verdict for Arthur Bishop was announced. He was found guilty of five counts of murder and aggravated kidnapping and was sentenced to death. His lawyer, who had hoped for life imprisonment for his client, with the early release this could be reduced to a maximum penalty of 30 years, left the courtroom amid boos and threats. While on death row, Arthur Bishop briefly found religion again. He spent most of his time writing letters addressed, for the most part, to judges. In them, he explained his uncontrollable impulses. He discussed his homosexuality and his love for little boys. For a while, he hoped to start the major task of writing his memoirs, but they would never be completed. According to his own admission, his sentence had been just and commensurated with the unspeakable acts he committed. Viewing child pornography was the only thing that was able to quell his impulses, and when that was no longer enough, he had a kill. Inspector Donbell, who reluctantly accepted the title of a hero in this monstrous case, recalled the murderer's comments. During a break when I was taking notes, he said to me, Don, thank you for arresting me. I wouldn't have hesitated to keep going if I had the chance. So he seemed to understand that he was irredeemable. He was aware of what he was doing and knew full well that the urges were wrong. Judge Bob Stott, who pronounced the verdict, agreed. After listening to Arthur Bishop's recorded testimony, in addition to his horrifying content, what struck me most of all was the tone he used to describe his crimes. He spoke of them as he would at his dinner from the night before, like his last coffee or his first cigarette in the morning, with complete detachment and impartiality. On June 10, 1988, Arthur Gary Bishop was executed by lethal injection in prison in the state of Utah. With him, a shameful and vicious era of child kidnapping by a pedophilic predator finally came to an end. In Salt Lake City, residents now realized that the most dangerous predators could have the friendliest faces, the most impeccable manners, and the ability to love and appreciate without arousing even the slightest suspicion. Bishop was not an isolated case in Salt Lake City. The Mormon city was home to another criminal of the same caliber. Although he operated in a completely different milieu, he was just as charming and just as lethal. Serial killer Ted Bundy We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. 
You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.